Okay, um, there, that matters. Uh, first thing, please silence your phones. Quickly make sure I did that. The reason we ask you to silence the phones and why we're gonna ask you to use written question cards is because many, though not all, of our programs are carried by the media. And when you have a stream of sound without interruptions because someone has a mic over here or a mic over there, makes it much easier for the media to cover it so we can take a program that's got maybe 50 people or so, uh, get it to a couple million. Um, uh, also, the cell phones are obviously, it's mostly we don't want you to be embarrassed and we all turn around and stare at you because <laughs> your phone's going off. Okay, that, um, we just had Tom Friedman from the New York Times in yesterday for an incredible program. Um, earlier uh, this month, we had in some other extraordinary people. I'm very excited about some of the programs coming up. Um, Friday, October 4th, we have a very interesting program on the role of um, uh, businesses in Minnesota in encouraging civic engagement. As you probably know, Minnesota ranks at the top or the top uh, for voter turnout and volunteering and, and all sorts of other measures. Um, and the corporate community's made a big investment in that. Uh, so we've got Secretary of State Simon, um, Secretary of State, uh, who's president of the Secretary of State Association, plus the high-level executives from Blue Cross Blue Shield and Target coming for that, um, and the authors of a terrific study done by Harvard. So that's, I think, pretty special. That's October 4th. Um, we always try to bring in voices across the political spectrum. Um, and so we're bringing in Ramesh Ponaru, who's a senior editor at the, um, um, the National Review, which was founded by kind of conservative icon uh, William Buckley. Uh, and Ramesh Ponaru, who's, if you search him, you'll see he's widely published and a real force. Um, he's been talking a lot about, you know, what's the future of conservative movement? Um, what's the future of the Republican Party? And he's someone who, who sees the Trump presidency as contributing to that, but also has some very smart suggestions about that. So that's October 15th, Ramesh Ponaru, be terrific. Uh, those of you interested in healthcare, and I think there's at least one person here is, uh, we've got a series that we've been running for a number of years now on health reform, and we're gonna have a program at the end of October on disruptions in the healthcare market. Disruption in healthcare sometimes can be um, troubling because people lose their coverage. On the other hand, if it leads to new innovation, um, new, new approaches for controlling costs, expanding access and, um, and choices and quality for consumers, it can be a good thing. So we're gonna dive into that mix. Okay, that's a big wind up, but hopefully it's caught your interest. We are your place to go for interesting conversations about uh, public affairs and politics. How many of you were absolutely thrilled by the U.S. women's soccer team? 
I found myself glued to the TV for weeks. It was something that I was just marveling at and knew a little bit about the background and followed the team for a number of years. Um, and so today's program is uh, partly about the U.S. women's soccer team and it's partly about the broader set of issues that we're going to be talking about. And I'm just thrilled to have a good friend of mine who's going to join us in the panel. I'll be the focal point of the panel, Professor Mary Jo Kane who had founded the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport. She's a professor in the School of Kinesiology. She's published very widely, uh, widely respected, kind of an all-star uh, in that area. She's also someone who I particularly admire because she's able to both publish in academic uh, outlets and then jump into the media and um, help to um, inform some of these really difficult conversations uh, we are having uh, around the issue of gender and sport. Please give a warm welcome, Professor Mary Jo Kane. Yeah, I probably, I just did an un, sort of unladylike, you know, but anyway, thank you. Larry and um, thank you to uh, the Humphrey School for inviting me here today again. So this needs to be close. You're like rock and roll singer. That's yours. There we go. Okay. Yep. Can you all hear me? Okay. Um, so the women's uh, soccer team was, I think, in real respects, kind of America's team. I noticed, you know, up and down the age groups, from young people to older folks, from men to women, we were just glued to the TV. Is this unusual for kind of America to rally around a women's sports team? It's actually not as unusual as you would think, and uh, it's just that it's, it tends to be during Olympic years or in things around World Cup championships. Um, and one of the things that I've long argued is that there is a great deal of interest in women's sports. Um, so when you hear over and over again, nobody's interested in women's sports, it's really often sports editors and sports writers who are saying nobody's interested. They might not be interested. But there's obviously an enormous untapped audience that is deeply interested. And when given a chance to shine in a global spotlight, fans show up, both in terms of being there in attendance and in also in watching the game. So it's one of the great myths that people aren't interested in women's sports. I do notice that uh, the men's basketball team at the U has been struggling to get bodies in the seats, not so much with women's volleyball. No, with, and for those of you who have not been to the pavilion to see a women's volleyball game, first of all, they're extraordinarily good. Um, and also, I think Hugh McCutcheon and his staff and, and the University of Minnesota Athletic Department more generally has done a great job in creating a terrific atmosphere when you go to the volleyball games. Uh, how many of you have gone to a women's volleyball game? Let me encourage you to do so. They're, they're quite extraordinary, as is the softball team, the women's hockey team, and on and on. So the, I think of, and maybe you'll disagree with me, there's a penultimate moment in 1973 when a bipartisan group of uh, Congress people came together and passed something known as Title IX. And the purpose of Title IX was to ban sex discrimination in schools that receive federal funding. It meant to be and is a wide-reaching uh, law. It has also had a tremendous impact on sports, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about that impact, but before we do, what was it like for uh, 
girls and women who wanted to participate in sport before 1973? Bring us into that world. Um, well, I am 68 years old, and uh, I grew up in central Illinois in the 50s and 60s, and I was a classic pre-Title IX tomboy, uh, which meant that I played baseball, basketball, and football with my two brothers and the neighborhood boys. Um, and then, like, as I'm seeing a lot of head shaking, uh, when it was time for me to go to high school, um, I certainly got the message that it was not okay for me to do that anymore. And so I did what a lot of girls or young women of my age did, which was that I became a cheerleader. Uh, and I was a complete, first of all, I was totally uninterested. And secondly, I was a complete disaster as a cheerleader. <clears throat> but what it mostly meant was that Actually, it was kind of mixed because on the one hand, because if you were a good athlete, you were given respect by guys that most females never got. Uh, and on the other hand, you risk being stigmatized as not a true athlete. And I'll give you, I share this with my students in my sport and gender class, one very vivid memory I have of being about eight or nine years old and being a classic tomboy. I was playing um, uh, touch football, actually it was flag football with my two brothers again in the neighborhood boys and at the local parks and rec uh, area and a young kid who was sort of not in our neighborhood drove by and saw me playing and I was the only girl there and he yelled out at me, you homo. And I remembered at the time, and, I, and the, everything stopped. And I remembered at the time, I went to a small private Catholic school, I didn't know what homo meant but I knew it was bad and I knew that I couldn't ask my parents what it meant, and I knew I certainly couldn't ask the nuns what it meant. But here's the, here's the critical point. He didn't say, you Democrat, or you Catholic. He said, you homo, because that's how young girls were stigmatized as not being real women before the passage of Title IX. So let's talk a little bit more about that. There were a whole lot of myths uh, and derogatory characterizations of women athletes before 1972 when Title IX was passed. Um, everything from, uh, you know, women athletes uh, would harm their reproductive abilities to this would affect their emotional states. Right. How prevalent was that? Was that just a couple, you know, crazy misogynists or is this something more widespread? Oh no, it was completely deeply embedded in the culture. Um, with, of course, very little, if any, scientific evidence. And in fact, if you think about this, women's reproductive organs are already protected because they are internal. It's men's reproductive organs that are far more vulnerable. <laughs> well, it's true. And yet we never, we never talk about that. Um, and I think just to, to bring it back, uh, Professor Jacobs, to what you were talking about originally with the U.S. women's soccer team, and I may be jumping ahead here a little bit, but <clears throat> I think what was unique to this team and they were often compared to the 99ers who also won the World Cup, but, and I'm talking about Mia Hamm, Brandi Chastain, and probably the most iconic image of women's sports is Brandi Chastain after she scored the goal in, in a penalty kickoff. What was different about these women is that when they were criticized for how they behaved, they didn't apologize. In fact, they trolled their critics. And I think the reason for that is because of Title IX, as we approach the 50th anniversary, for the first time in our history, young women today grow up with a sense of entitlement to sports. And that is something that is brand new. We were thrilled if we could get hand-me-downs. 
We were thrilled if we just had an opportunity to play at midnight. But these young women grow up knowing that if they're good enough and they're willing to pay a price, an opportunity will be there for them. And so they had absolutely no interest in backing down. And in fact, as I said, they not only trolled their critics, but they were very aware of using a social media platform to argue for things like gender equity. And no group of women athletes, I think, have, have ever been that way. That team is interesting also because some of them, at least, had memories of kind of the early Title IX period. Yes. And I was you know, looking back at some of the numbers because it's so striking. <clears throat> the number of girls participating in sport uh, before 1972, about 300,000. Today, it's about ninefold that. Yeah. If you look at intercollegiate athletics, uh, similar kind of growth, 32,000 before thir uh, 1972, and it's now over 150,000. These are you know, the kind of athletes that we see at the U and other universities and colleges. So it's been a dramatic, dramatic change. What have you seen in terms of, you've mentioned kind of the, the sense of entitlement, I belong. What have you seen in terms of the uh, quality across the board, the talent, the coaching, the uniforms, the bring us up to date, where are we? Well again, I think there's an exponential difference between the level of ability um, and certainly the level of interest. It wasn't there wasn't a level of interest before, but it was suppressed. And now it's encouraged and it's blossomed. And so young women today, and this is true for many of the student athletes in my class, and by the way, Prior to Title IX, athletic scholarships were virtually non-existent. Today, 43% of all scholarship athletes at the Division I level are female. And by the way, the biggest, many of the biggest offenders of Title IX are not just the young women, but their parents, who now see that their daughters have an opportunity to go to college on an athletic scholarship, maybe have a professional career, which was something that was unheard of um, before Title IX. So, it's important for us to always remember that Title IX is, as you pointed out early on, Professor Jacobs, civil rights legislation. And it is a perfect example of a country deciding to, to put forth a social policy that engendered radical fundamental social change so that it is no longer today an anathema, a contradiction in terms for a young girl to want to grow up and play sports. This doesn't mean that everything's perfect. This doesn't mean that there still aren't inequities in resources and pay. And it isn't, I mean, there are certainly some females who are still stigmatized, especially in sports like hockey, softball. We can maybe get into that in terms of gender role stereotypes. But it has fundamentally and radically altered what it means to be a female and an athlete in this culture, which is precisely why these young women grow up with this sense of entitlement. Because from day one, they have access to not only opportunities, but facilities, coaching, nutrition, um, corporate sponsorship, just unheard of in terms of what the early Title IX advocates thought would happen. I was noticing as I was watching the US women's soccer team performed so brilliantly that the announcers kept calling out players and other teams that were going to American universities right. who were receiving scholarships, who were receiving many of the same benefits right. that you're describing. And so it seems like, and, and you know, help me with this, that Title IX obviously helped American women and uh, girls, but also has had a global impact. Of course. And I think that as countries, you know, it's, it's one of these, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. 
And as other countries realize the significance of investing in their women to, to um, participate on the global stage, but a lot of them also realized, again, parents uh, and uh, international sports structures, that if they wanted their young women to be, become really great athletes and push it to the next level, the best place for them to do that was in the United States, where we have a unique, as we all know, uh, system of sports where the vast majority of our semi-professional and professional sports, or at least, um, well, they really are professional sports, but that's a whole other issue, are, are housed and developed within our educational systems, whereas in the vast majority of countries, the state is responsible for the development of sports and athletes, but not here in the United States. Are we seeing an impact in other countries that want to keep up with the U.S.? I mean, I would Absolutely. think if you're a legislator, in England or France or you know one of the other countries that the U U.S. women stomped on, that it might occur to them, let's see what we can do so our, our ladies are, are able to compete. Yeah, and, and uh, there was a great deal of uh, uh, public discourse from sports commentators and others that this would not be a cakewalk for the United States because so many of the other teams on the international level were better. Um, and my response to that is fabulous. Because if you, if you want the U.S. women to win, then they need to beat the very best. Uh, and you saw that as they kept going and advancing with each victory. So um, I, I just don't, I, I have said this many times, we would not be where we are without Title IX. Um, and the other thing that I've pointed out is that in two generations, we've gone from young girls like me hoping that there is a team to young girls all over this country hoping that they make the team. And that is the fundamental difference because of Title IX. You mentioned uh, in passing that it's not perfect. No. So let's talk a little bit about that. It was very striking in March. Uh, the entire women's soccer team s signed on to a uh, lawsuit suing the Soccer uh, Association for disparities. I've got some numbers here, really. When you look at the numbers, it's, it's staggering. Um, this is looking at men and women. Uh, if you make the World Cup roster, men are paid about seventy-five dollars to $80,000, five times more than women. If the team goes on and wins the World Cup, which the men have had a hard time doing, the men are getting paid close to $10 million, five times what women are being paid. Is this something that's become a pattern? I mean, is this, is this changing? I mean, is, I would think someone would be embarrassed. I'll never underestimate people's ability not to be embarrassed. Um, <clears throat> um, well, and it's even much more extreme when you compare the uh, salaries in the NBA versus the WNBA. Um, and, but, I, but I think by every benchmark, what the Women's World Cup showed or demonstrated again was that um, there is interest not only in terms of, of sort of butts in the seats, if you will, but in terms of corporate sponsorship, in terms of moving product. At, after, they, after the women won the World Cup, Nike was, you know, and I'm not saying this was necessarily out of the goodness of their heart, but Nike was smart enough to have an immediate commercial. I don't know how many of you saw that, which was extremely powerful. And it not only uh, had showed great respect for the women, but also helped them move T-shirts and other merchandise about the Women's World Cup that broke every record that Nike had ever had in terms of moving product along. And that, again, shows you the economic power of what women can bring. 
having said that, and we, you know, this is another maybe a little bit of a rabbit hole too soon to go down, but, and this gets back to the, the whole sort of uh, notion deeply embedded in our culture that nobody's interested in women's sports. And I have come to believe over the years that the real concern of the gatekeepers of sports more generally is not that there's not enough interest in women's sports, but given half a chance, there would be far too much interest in women's sports. And then, they, and then men would no longer have a monopoly on one of what is one of the most important economic, social, and political institutions in this culture. So as a sociologist, I always say the bottom line is who benefits from what's happening here? And when you say, why would the gatekeepers go against what appears to be their own economic self-interest, it's because the broader issue is it's deeply important to continue to equate maleness, or at least superior athletic performance, which is a whole other topic today, with maleness. And that notion is getting obliterated by, um, by teams like the U.S. women's soccer. And of course, as we were talking about yep. earlier, this is part of the history. Yes. If you go back to the history of women and girls sport, uh, th there is a very explicit uh, kind of demonization of women athletes as, um, you know, uh, subject to emotional um, panic and anxiety and, and this would harm their reproductive abilities. So this, what you're describing is a, is, is a long historical pattern. Yes, and, and a, a, an ideology and a structure and a practice that says until very recently when this notion has been challenged <clears throat> that sport by definition is about an oppositional gendered binary. And one of the things that we've begun to realize is that in fact sport really should be talked about in terms of a continuum of athletic performance, not just a gendered binary. Um, and <clears throat> I have again long argued that segregating sports is not really about protecting the interests of women, it's about protecting the interests of men. Because if women competed with and against men and actually beat them head to head, then what do we do with the notion that men by definition are superior athletes? Um, I'll give you, a, I think, a classic example of that. Um, in most cases, women and men do not compete with and against each other. But there is one popular sport where they actually compete on the same day in the same event at the same time, and I see people shaking their heads, and it's what? It's the marathon. Now, it's the marathon. Well, one is the marathon, okay, where you have on, especially at the elite marathons like the Twin Cities, Boston, New York, you'll have anywhere from six to 7,000 men competing, four to 5,000 women competing. What's really interesting that happens when, when, that, when we see the marathon is we have what I've written about called selective gender comparisons. And this is why this matters, okay? What you see, um, and I'm not saying this is this conscious evil conspiracy, but what you see in terms of the coverage and the discourse about the marathon is you'll watch men and women, again, running along a continuum and you will, t you will hear commentators talk about the, f the first male runners and then comparing them to the first female runners. And typically in a marathon, the first 30 to 40 people who cross the finish line are men. And the minute the first woman crosses that finish line, gender comparisons vanish. And so what we are left with is no matter how good a woman is, she can never beat a man because she's only compared to these first 30 men. 
but she is never compared to all of the other elite male, thousands of elite male runners whom she just beat on the same day, on the same course, at the same time. If we focus, and I'm not saying, by the way, we shouldn't focus on the former, but we can also focus on the latter because here's the punchline there. Some women can beat almost all men in the same sport at the same time on the same day. Now imagine what would happen if we walked around with that in our heads. And that's why it's terribly important to suppress any idea of sport as a continuum in which women and men compete against men. And just to give a concrete example yeah. of what you're talking about, <clears throat> I looked up the numbers for the New York Marathon. The 27th fastest time was uh, registered by a woman, uh, and she beat over 30,000 men. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what you're talking yeah, about. Absolutely. And it, it's so interesting. Many of us are not just scholars here, but also educators. And when I share this with my students, which I will do in a few weeks. I don't want to like blow them out the first day and lose them. Uh, but you can just see their heads just sort of exploding with, wow, that's a really good point. And again, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't emphasize or even privilege those first 30 men, but it's, it's interesting that that other comparison never, ever, ever surfaces. And I suggest the reason for that is who benefits. Uh, we're very pleased to uh, have joining us uh, this afternoon Dr. Jamie Feldman, who is um, an MD and a PhD and on the faculty of the University of Minnesota's program in human sexuality. She's chaired a transgender medicine and research committee and published on transgender hormone therapy and primary care. Dr. Feldman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're now kind of uh, tipping into a whole set of issues. Um, and I think it's, it's primed in part by some of the international scrutiny of sex testing. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of different ways to go about this, but um, you know, some of the history of this, 1976 US Open, Renee Richards, who had transitioned from being male to female, uh, wanted to participate as a woman. Is that fair? Well, it depends on what you think about as fairness and how you consider the difference between gender and sex. So first we have to get our definition straight. Um, one, there isn't, um, if we think about sex as a, a binary, uh, I'll, I'll defi define some terms first. So when you say binary, you mean male and female. Right. We think of, tend to think of things as two poles. I like to use my hands a lot. Um, so we always like to have two boxes because it's easier and we like to put things in two boxes. So we've got male and we've got female. And we talk about male and female, we're thinking about the physical body of male and female, okay? Not necessarily what people uh, experience as their gender, that is the sense of being masculine and feminine. So we're gonna talk about sex as male and female, not whether I feel my gender is masculine, feeling more male or feeling or being or experiencing being masculine or feminine. So Renee Richards, wanted to felt experienced being more feminine and wanted to align her body, her physical self, with being that mm -hmm. toward the more female pole. And so fairness is whether Renee Richards had an advantage over other female, that is non-transitioned, sex assigned at birth female people in her sport. 
And it depends what you consider an advantage and depends on what you consider what sport it's in. And it depends on what hormone therapy Renee Richards or surgeries Renee Richards had. So if it was horseback riding, Renee Richards probably didn't have any advantage whatsoever. Um, I believe Renee Richards was tennis, correct? So it, it's a nuanced answer. Renee Richards took hormone therapy, had, uh, I believe she had uh, gender uh, affirmation surgery, so her testosterone levels were lower and lost muscle mass, so couldn't have the power that she had 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 she remained in a male physique, so couldn't hit the ball as hard. So her, most of her advantages were negated. She probably was a little taller, but you have tall tennis female, you know, cisgendered female tennis players. So, you know, there, is there some inherent advantage? Probably not significantly. Again, there's a range. So putting things into those boxes are not really easy. So does it make sense then, given what you just said, to do away with the distinction between male and female sports? Let women participate in, in running at the Olympics, 800 meters. Let's have the men and women in the same race. So if we talk again, it's very unusual or it's very difficult to talk about men and women. We could, but then we'd have to compensate for the markers that give people head-to-head -head differences. Well, let's say we just said we're gonna have a race in the Olympics, the 800 meter, mm -hmm. with all people. With all people, so? Would that be a good idea? Depends, what you want, uh, depends on what you mark your fairness as. So it would, be, it would be one way of doing it, we could. So let me just kind of pose this. Um, this, what you're talking about, I think, begins to align sport with the dramatic change that's gone on in our society mm -hmm. in which the distinction between male and female is broken down. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, efforts to sustain it are now under assault and mm -hmm. challenge. But if we bring that to sport, isn't it the case that men would win? I mean, just to take the New York Marathon, mm -hmm. the fastest woman came in 27th. So if you were looking at, you know, placing, you know, we're, in a way, the, the effort to um, move forward a social agenda, wouldn't it set back the interest of women to be able to compete and win? It depends on what level of sport and what sport you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So basically the difference between um, most of the, it depends on how you define male and female. So for example, most at the very elite level, the difference between record holders at things that require power and oxygenation is about 10%. 90%, you know, so if you look at, I'll take weightlifting out, that's a little higher, but the fastest times, the fastest speeds, the uh, distance you can throw something, is about 10% between records holders, okay, between men and women in that same event, okay? So these are the most elite athletes, okay? So those are the differences. The other 90%, you know, everything up to that 10% is exactly the same, okay? I thought it would be higher, actually, when I looked this up, okay? So the difference between men and women is 10 is 10%. Now, at the elite level, that, that, that's a lot, Okay, but it's not, not, not tremendous. 
So that's the variation between adults at the elite level. At anything less than the elite level, which is where most of us live, by the way, um, that difference is probably significantly less. So if I go and do a running match against someone in a non-collegiate sport, I may we, or do some other sport, sailing, golf, whatever, I may well beat uh, the same person based on better training, better skills, better tactics. At the elite level, it's not whether it's male or female. If we take gender out, who has better muscle mass? Who has good training? Who has more endurance? Who has quicker neural fibers? Who has better lung capacity? That may be a masculine person, a male person. That may be someone who is trans, depending on when they've transitioned. That may be uh, a, what we would put into a female box. So there's a lot of different variables. Theoretically, we could mark by categories of weight. We could mark by categories of height. We could mark by categories. It's just easier and more convenient to lump them into male and female. Mm -hmm. so, so it depends on the sport. I want to raise, did you want to jump in, Professor well, Kane? Yeah, I mean, to me, I think what's really, really important here in terms of sort of the public and social discourse is that we, again, fall into this trap of equating superior athletic performance as a function of one's testosterone levels. Well, there's a whole bunch of problems with that. First of all, uh, on average, because males do have higher levels of testosterone, they tend to be bigger and stronger on average. But all of this rests on the definition of what it is we consider superior athleticism. You know, on the seventh day, God didn't say, let it be football. We, we could decide as a culture to say, a superior athletic performance is the ability of someone to do a backflip on a balance beam. Bring it on. Um, and so that's one thing that we, we really need to understand that's going on here, is that if we equate athletic performance with testosterone levels, by definition, males will be advantaged. But the other thing I think that's terribly important is that it is only women or suspicious intersex women who get sex tested or who get their testosterone levels measured. So for example, if you want to have women and men competing with each other, let's have everybody's testosterone levels checked. So that when we see the top three male performers, for example, swimmers at the Olympics, let's test their testosterone levels. And if Michael Phelps is winning because he has an exceptionally high testosterone level, then let's talk about it. But it is only that we focus on women and their testosterone levels in the male range, and that when intersex athletes or women like Castor Semenya have higher levels of testosterone, that we are going to medically uh, reduce her testosterone levels in order for her to compete. Based on what? And this is where I would turn yeah. it over to you. The other piece of that is that most of the effects that we see for testosterone levels, muscle mass, higher lung capacity, higher heart size, um, bone density, are all set at puberty. Those are things that are all put into place when people are just growing up to be adults. Once you're at an adult stage, that extra testosterone level really gives the ability maybe to build some more muscle mass increases red blood cell count so you can carry more oxygen. But those other things are already set. Uh, thank you, Dr. Feldman. We're kind of um, moving towards one of the 
most talked about cases uh, because it's a very concrete issue. It's mm -hmm. really reshaping international sport. Um, a uh, extraordinary uh, runner from South Africa, um, Castor uh, Semenya, who uh, had won previous Olympics, was barred this past year from participating in international sport because her hormone level was judged to be too high. And this really raises, mm -hmm. this has come up in the conversation, two different concepts. One is the, the level playing field. It's fairness, it's level playing field, and hormone levels is the measure of mm -hmm. that. Um, and the other concept is um, this idea that the division between men and women is blurring, as mm -hmm. you two have been saying. So I take it that the handling of this case mm -hmm. with Castor um, uh, Semenya is one that you take issue with, Dr. Feldman. Absolutely. Um, you can't, one, it's, it's the boxing of people, that somehow that if your hormones are different, they're outside this very strong normal curve. So if your hormones are outside some sort of magical box, that you are no longer a woman, that you're, some, you're an intersex person, or that you're no longer a woman, uh, a woman enough to be categorized to compete. But men are never subjected to this, that somehow if your hormones are too high or too low, that no one tests men to see if they should compete in the women's category, by the way, um, that they're no longer manly enough, that they should compete over here. We don't sort men by, into boxes. We only sort women into boxes. Um, so that's one of the problems, is that we can only have two boxes, and we decide by hormone levels. The trouble is that hormones are an absolutely poor way to sort gender, to sort sex. Say, say more about that. I've wondered, I've been reading up and followed this debate a bit. There's some people who say hormone levels you know, give such an advantage. It's a, an advantage for performance in terms of muscle mass and, and other things. Um, and then I went through uh, some of the arguments that have been made to these international sport uh, groups and the defenders of Castor Semenya uh, came forward and said, the research doesn't support that. So can you help us? What does sure. the research say? So um, while I'm not a performance scientist, I'll put that caveat in front of it. Remember I talked about that when people are developing, we're talking about the difference of hormone levels during the end interaction with chromosomes and genetics at the puberty stage. So there's a lot of things besides hormones that go into the development of people's bodies at the beginning of puberty into adulthood. And hormones have an impact on that. But once you're at the past puberty stage, okay, ongoing into your athletic life, you're pushing these little finite bits of advantage. This is like, okay, I'm gonna take testosterone in order to push to get that little bit of extra muscle mass. But that's, you're really pushing the edges. So you're, not gonna, you're not gonna get like a ton, you're getting that extra light, you're trying to, you're so the performance enhancing steroid piece that all bodybuilders and athletes and, um, oh God, who's the, the baseball players and, are all chasing, or is that little bit of edge? It's, they're chasing that, that extra, it's not a big advantage. If they're just chasing that extra little bit. 
So and so it's not making a big difference. Let's say we were to play Dr. Frankenstein going to a lab, mm -hmm. and you were to design an athlete who did have the big advantage, and we were to make alterations somehow if that were possible. Mm -hmm. um, what is it that would provide a competitive advantage for uh, a woman or someone who's designated as a woman in the, the box of women athletics that would give them something more than, you know, at the elite level, that small advantage? Would it be, um, you know, joints and, and um, bones? Would it you know, help us understand what, is there something, if, if we could play Dr. Frankenstein, If I could say, play Dr. Frankenstein? Yeah. Uh, I'd probably fix some joint alignments and tendons and ligaments more than anything. Uh, maybe give them a little more... Um, uh, give everybody more dedication to training, access to training yeah. and money, um, more than maybe physical alignments, a little bit more muscle building ability, a little maybe a little more growth hormone, uh, a little bit more height than the average woman would get. Um, that's, but I'd probably start with joints and ligaments first. That's, that would be the first one I would start with. So they wouldn't, there's a tendency to get out of alignment, pull more tendons and, and ligaments, so less injury prone. Um, and uh, maybe a little more oxygenation capacity, lung capacity, heart uh, capacity. Professor Kane, this must be very difficult. Well, no, no, and I, let's we'll talk see. about uh, mental toughness yeah. and guts <clears throat> and grace under pressure. Well, I mean, those are the things, in my view, that separate the elite champion athletes mm -hmm. from, you know, sort of the, the also-rans. And, you know, and I know that we've talked other scholars have talked about this a lot, but another thing that gives people a tremendous advantage in sports, especially at elite levels in certain sports, is race and social class. Yeah. We can talk about that too, um, as we know. Um, uh, I, I just, I, I wanna share one quote before we run out of time here. As I was reading up from a physical scientist, a medical scientist, um, who, who has done some work in this area, and her name is Alice Dreger. And here is a fabulous quote. She's, and she's talking about this notion of how we absolutely, the medical community, should not sign off on these kinds of policies and procedures where we, again, uh, talk about sex as this oppositional binary. And her quote is the following. While humans like neat, clean categories, nature is a slob. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's so great. And she also went on to say that in terms of talking about men's and women's sports, she says this is a social decision, not a scientific one, much like re reaching consensus that a touchdown is worth six points. And I, I think that that's really important to keep those kinds of things in mind when we talk about men's sports, women's sports, and Absolutely. never the twain shall Dr. meet. Dr. Feldman? Yeah, yeah two, a couple things. One, many people don't know that men's testosterone the normal range is from 300 to 900. That's 600 points. So all those guys playing, their normal testosterone runs from that range. So we have to catch Michael Phelps, depending what, and it varies from time of day, in the morning versus evening, highest in the morning, for guys under 45. So it depends when you test Michael Phelps, what his testosterone level is gonna be. So your point is, if we're saying that Castor Semenya's uh, testosterone is too high, uh, and she can't compete in women's um, international events. Is it the case with men that they too uh, have this range of performance based on on their hormone levels? Right. So yeah. So it depends on what time of day we catch I, them and you know, which guy competes against which other guy. I thought it was. <laughs> I thought it was interesting um, in the 
decisions by these international bodies that they've um, kind of carved out a range in which the, the performance advantage from higher hormone levels had a big impact. And it was from 400 meters to a mile, and they said after a mile, it doesn't have much impact. Is that, is that scientifically accurate, or, or is it really not a hard dividing line? And There's almost never, I can't say, again, I'm not a performance specialist, but it's probably not a hard line. And again, we're talking about if you're running a race, it's 400 meters. If that's what they measured, there's a whole mess of range of athletic performance. So athletic performance is defined by how you can run from 400 meters to a mile under a stopwatch. Is it defined by what other things go into defining athletic performance and testosterone? Is it how much you can lift? Is it how long you can hold your breath? Is it how far you can do a backflip? Is it um, the pressure that you can kick a 55-yard field goal? Um, depending, you know, uh, on any given day with the wind direction. Um, is it grace under pressure with, uh, on a World Cup stage? So there's a lot of standards of athletic performance, and I don't know that they tested them all versus testosterone. So here's a, uh, um, a quote from a very interesting editorial in the Washington Post by Monica Hess. And she makes this comparison to Michael Phelps, who was, of course, the oh, tremendous, tremendous uh, Olympic swimmer who holds all sorts of world records. <laughs> Michael Phelps was treated as a wondrous marvel. Nobody suggested that he should be forced to have corrective surgery on his double-jointed ankles. Nobody decided that he should take medication to boost his lactate levels. And... Um, uh, Monica Hess goes on to say that while Phelps was treated as a marvel, um, Castor Semenya was treated like a mutant. A freak. A freak, yes. A freak of nature. Right. So no, one's, no, one, no one's suggesting that since Michael Phelps, has, because he has exceptionally large feet and is very tall, um, that, he, well, he has an unfair advantage, so we better bring him. He can't perform, so we have to cut him out. And those, those things are advantages. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, and I think it also goes back to this notion of who owns sports and which sports they own and what does it mean because of Title IX and a fundamental sea change about what it means to be a female and an athlete and that they penetrate, if you will, sacred male space. And so now we're into this brave new world about what it means. And I see this, a lot of this is, a, is backlash so that you can carve out your territory and continue to monopolize sports. Speaking as Dr. an anthropologist Fellman. also, um, the other piece is this need to defend women, that somehow we're very helpless and that we need to be protected from uh, not succeeding. So for example, nobody goes and protects men or saying, well, this guy is too good, Michael Phelps is too good, we better cut him out because the other guys won't succeed. But somehow, women need to be protected from w people who might have an unfair advantage. As if we can't, our feelings will get hurt. Okay, but I'm I, not sure I, that... I, I understand that, that perspective, and I respect it. But I think, to some extent, there is a physiological issue here. I mean, to go back to the New York Marathon, the woman who won among women ranked 27th among all the people who ran. And this was her identity as a woman. So while I think it's obviously um, 
uh, you know, a progressive social position to be talking about not accepting these binary choices, I do wonder if it would set back the ability of women to experience victory. If, there, if there's one class and we decide that these are just feelings, rather than physiological differences. I think that we can accommodate, I think there's not, it's not an either or agenda. I think for, we don't need to make decisions uh, against people like uh, who, trans women who've had uh, hormone therapy, but who happen to have bigger hands, taller, have, testosterone levels somewhere, depending on the sport we're talking about, or castrosemia. Um, we don't feel that we need to be, to be protected at every turn by having our boundaries, this boundaries of womanhood, protected against some outlier. Against, depending on what other sports we're talking about, our definition of what sport is, what would be an unfair advantage, the concept of advantage, what sport is, whether those unfair advantages are based on power, speed. Some sports may well be very good to put into other categories besides male, female, testosterone. Professor. Some things need to be. Well, I, I mean, you, you make, a, I think, uh, Professor Jacobs, a really important point about sort of where we are, even though we've made, obviously, enormous changes as a result of Title IX. Um, some of you who are in the audience know this, in 1995, I wrote an article in which I talked about, I, I developed this theory of sport as a continuum. And it was this, she said humbly, incredibly fabulous theory about how we need to get rid of this notion of gender, oppositional gender binary of men's and women's sports. On, theory, on paper, it's a great theory. But at least where we are right now is that the logical extension of this continuum theory is that we would have one basketball team at the University of Minnesota, one's hockey team at the University of Minnesota, and the very people for whom you're trying to increase opportunities for are gonna get left out. And that's the problem mm -hmm. where we are right now. Now having said that, 100 years ago, and I'm looking at uh, Elaine May, professor and historian. Who's not 100 years old. She's not 100 years old. <laughs> Uh, she's close, but she looks fabulous. Um, but 100 years ago, or 150 years ago, if I had talked about how one day women are going to be competing at the most elite levels, and had Professor May been there and made that argument, you know, she wouldn't have done very well, particularly. So I'm not saying that that's where we are right now, but I'm also saying that until young girls grow up thinking they want to be the best baseball player or the best basketball player, maybe four, five, six, seven generations from now, that's where we'll be. But right now, if we had the full integration of women and men's sports, women would be very badly damaged, especially in team sports that are most glorified in this culture. And I think that's a very important point, and I yeah. think, it, it provides a context for understanding, you know, this difficult topic we're talking mm -hmm. about. I would note, uh, I don't know if you followed this, but about a month ago, when the uh, NFL teams were in summer training for the beginning of the season, uh, Carly Lloyd oh, is yeah. one of the all-star women's soccer players right. for a number of uh, years, uh, stopped by the Philadelphia Eagles training facility 
and was consistently kicking field goals 55 yards and longer. And just to be clear, the Vikings don't have a kicker who can do that. No, nor do ne- the Bears. Neither do the Bears. I was, I'm, <laughs> we're from near Chicago. So, so her, her phone started ringing, and yeah. she started getting offers to come and join the team. And, and um, she said, well, thank you, but no thank you, because she's a woman soccer player and commitment to her team. Exactly, yeah. But this would be an example of one sort of inch closer to women integrating sports like football. And I think, I think baseball probably will be the Ilsa first Bo- one. Ilsa Border Dr. Feldman. Was, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. Ilsa Border was pitched in uh, the um, Major League Baseball for a brief time. Like I said, those, those, that blurring of boundaries is where we're at right now. And we don't want to take away from those victories and from that ability to compete and to win and from that access that women have in sports um, at those elite level and in those sports where that 10%, remember that 10%, plays a tremendous difference. There are plenty of sports and at plenty of levels below the elite level where that 10% plays almost no difference. We're not at that level. So I think, you know, in fairness to the international uh, sport uh, associations that have been policing sex, um, they've come in for a heck of a thrashing. Mm-hmm. Um, but imagine a scenario, um, and you can imagine um, whether it's running or another area or tennis uh, where you have a male, perhaps mm-hmm. a terrific uh, male who's now fallen out of the top ranks mm-hmm. among the men and decides to announce and identify as a woman and participate. We've had some clownish examples mm-hmm. of that in tennis over the years, but isn't there a need to have some sort of differentiation so that guys who are looking simply to make money, mm-hmm. simply to kind of get notoriety, uh, don't take advantage of the opportunity to self-identify only for a monetary reward or for glory. <laughs> Dr. Feldman. This is, this is the same kind of, we always need to, to look for these things. This is the same sort of arguments we worry about men's go, men, um, men pretending to be women going into to bathrooms. Sure, we always have to look out for things like this. Um, but how often does it happen? How often would it happen? Um, on an international front, it's still a very st- so. We're, if we're talking about people who are saying, "Well, I'm going to live, come out as trans just for the money, so I can compete in a women's sports team," that's that's a lot of stigma to 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 take on in this world. Trans people have a lot of stigma. Not only that, it's, if they if they have that notoriety, it's gonna it's a brief flash in the pan. Not to mention, women's sport just does not have quite now the amount of money to make that attraction last for very long. So I think that's pretty much a straw argument most of the time. To be perfectly yeah. honest, it's a lot of hassle, a lot of nastiness to pick up a few so thousand bucks. Don't worry about that. I wouldn't worry about it. There's a lot bigger fish to fry for this. Okay, we've got uh, several questions here from our friends in the audience. For folks that identify their gender as non-binary, mm-hmm. what current athletic programs are in place for them? Um, non-binary companies 
um, a large category of gender identification. So I think it would really be individualized to what uh, athletic programs they're interested in and how they, where they like to identify. I don't think um, there are specific um, non-binary programs specifically for people who identify specifically as non-binary, such as we have the non-binary basketball team, for example. But there are a lot of sports that gender simply doesn't matter. For example, I'm, uh, I'm involved in um, fencing and sword, sword arts, Western martial arts, and gender simply just doesn't come into play whatsoever. So we have a lot of people across the gender spectrum fighting each other that a lot of martial arts, in fact, don't involve gender whatsoever or gender categories. So, so bring us into the, you know, the uh, K to 12 and then the collegiate sports world. Are there efforts to police sex? Is, are there, what, and if so, what factors enter into it? Is it more sensible and reasonable than your views about the international sex testing? Or um, how's, it, how's, it, how's it playing out in the real world um, in terms of particularly non-binary? Depending on where you live and the culture on where you live, so a lot of this is sociocultural. It's not very medical, especially on the K to 12, uh, the K to six, certainly on the prepubertal level. It's really based on gender identity. It's based on acceptance. It's based on negotiating uh, with school districts, park districts, et cetera. Physiologically, uh, under prepubertal children are very similar in their abilities. And so it really is um, a matter of just socially transitioning or identifying and finding accepting resources and accepting families and letting kids be kids and doing what they love. Thank you, Dr. Feldman. Professor Kane. Well, I know that uh, I can't speak to K through 12, but I know that the NCAA has worked with various um, athletic organizations to try to work with trans, to try to develop policies about what do we do about transgender athletes. Uh, and in fact, with a shameless plug two years ago, the Tucker Center had, uh, hosted a panel on the whole issue of transgender athletes, which Jonathan, people can go on our website and still download. Um, and one of the people that we had on the panel was a, a volleyball coach and administrator from Carleton, and she helped develop the policy for the MIAC League about what, how they would handle uh, issues of transgender athletes. I'm looking at Doug Hartman in the back. Big Ten, are where, are where, we haven't developed anything yet. In fact, I don't know of any of the what are called the Power Five conferences. It's usually at the Division Three level. Um, that these kinds of policies are being worked out, but so far nothing, you know? So it's being kind of handled uh, kind of on the basis I think you've been talking about, yeah. Dr. Feldman, that it's um, people self-identifying mm -hmm. and that the kind of intense scrutiny and testing that we're seeing at the international yeah. level doesn't characterize. Doesn't characterize, and certainly not at the high school level, at the high school level either. A lot of times they'll simply ask because I want to stay on the, I've had one of my patients say, well, I want to stay on the girls team. I'm going to put off doing hormone therapy, and then when I'm done for this season, I'm going to swap over. Mm -hmm. um, this, and these are in the puberty. These are the, the, the teens and high school teens. And are there issues with regards to um, kind of individual autonomy and self-respect. I'm thinking, you know, you've got a woman on the wrestling team or on the football team that she needs separate facilities to change. 
either, um, you know, kind of the physical contact, cross a line? I mean, are these straw men or are these real issues? These are issues that um, people have many, many concerns about. And because people have very deeply held beliefs, deeply held fears, they need to be addressed. So in the sense that they're not straw men in the sense that um, people have feelings, people have concerns, there are heavy emotions, so they always need to be addressed, and they involve young people. So anytime you're involving young people, families, and bodies, they always need to be addressed. I'm already seeing in my mind a crowded uh, school forum with mm. some parents standing up right. with a red face and very angry right. on both sides of the issue. Right. Now, yeah. at the same time, we need to make sure that children, youth are supported, that their opportunities and needs are met, that they are not stigmatized, that they're not shunted off to the back bathroom behind the, the curtain with the sign, with the things that beware of the leopard over it. Okay, so that they can participate fully and be supported in who they are. And we just need to get from A to Z and do that uh, in a way that makes everyone at least reasonably accepting and comfortable. Professor Kane? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking, and I hadn't thought about this until just now, I think maybe one of the reasons that policies and procedures, and again, uh, if you go to the Tucker uh, Center website, uh, the administrator from Carleton had a whole bunch of uh, resources about how they develop their policies. But uh, at the Division three level, you don't have athletic scholarships. Now, at the, at the Division one level, you do. So, and they are guarded very carefully in their sacred, their sacred space. So if I'm a, a volleyball coach who offers a scholarship to an athlete, when he, he or she is a freshman, and they tell me that they want to transition, do they get to keep their scholarship? I'm, I'm looking at you. Do you. I mean, do they get to keep their scholarship? Because you're not allowed to pull a scholarship uh, for lack of, for, for performance issues, but, but what, what if they want to transition and be on the men's team or the women's team? Do you lose the scholarship or does the scholarship follow them? Uh, do, you, do you know? I have no idea. Yeah. Yes. It's a, this is a very brave and complicated new world. One of the areas that um, we have seen controversy has been in the area of powerlifting. Mm -hmm. We've seen both a uh, transgender um, male to female who's powerlifting as a woman and setting records. We've also seen a case of, or cases here in Minnesota involving um, uh, higher levels of hormones and powerlifting. Do you think in a sport like powerlifting, which is strength-based, which is based on muscle mass, that this is so profoundly um, impacted by um, the distinct gender characteristics that some of the, th the blurring that we've talked about maybe doesn't apply? 
Powerlifting is an odd piece, um, and I can't even speak to Dr. Feldman. Yeah, yeah, I can't even speak to um, the level of you know doping in powerlifting. For all I know, uh, for a trans woman in powerlifting, um, there's probably also weight classes. I imagine in powerlifting as well. So I'm not a powerlifting expert. I suspect there has to be nuance to how that whole sport is managed. Um, and a very close look at class classes in powerlifting. Certain things probably need to be managed in that sport. I would have to defer to, to how that sport is parsed out in terms of how they manage people under transition. Size, weight, doping in terms of the entire sport class, I would, I would have to say. Um, just because it's based on a lot of muscle mass. Another question from the audience. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, does Title IX differentiate by allowing women to try out for men's sports, but not allow men to try out for women's? Yeah, I don't. Um, Professor I don't, Kane. I don't. I don't know the the latest developments in those kinds of issues. Excuse me. <clears throat> if there's somebody in the audience who does, in terms of, again, policies and procedures, um, I mean, obviously, females, by definition, can try out for men's sports. Um, that would be in violation, but they typically don't do so and often wouldn't make it, uh, especially in certain team combat-oriented sports. Um, I, I know that there have been lawsuits about, uh, at the, especially at the high school level, of men who wanted to join women's teams uh, and how that played out, but I don't know what the latest rules are. Professor Kane, I want to ask you to pull back as we're running out of time here. And um, you've been at this for a long time. You've founded the Tucker Center. You've been part of a lot of important and difficult conversations that have contributed to uh, this, I would say, glorious moment when you can go to a women's soccer or volleyball game here at the U or pretty much any high school in the state. And you see girls that are excited and turned on and filled with self-esteem and spectators that are filled. Mm -hmm. When you started, did you think we'd end up at this point? No, not in my lifetime. And I think that's what's been so extraordinary about what's happened as a function of Title IX is that after decades and decades and decades of being told that girls aren't interested in sports and even if they were, there would never be any good, is that we, Title IX provided them with all kinds of opportunities and it's just absolutely blown the doors off. And, um, you know, I, I love men's sports too. I mean, I do. I'm Doug Hartman's, I, mean, I love football. I feel like I should like say a rosary or something, but I, I, I love football. Um, and, and I have been to so many men's sporting events as well as women's across my lifetime, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. But a couple of years ago when um, the Lynx played their final game uh, at the barn because uh, the Target Center was under construction, how, how many people were there? Was anybody there? you of course um, I, I walked into that place and it was the crowd was just jacked and and as I'm telling you this I'm getting goosebumps because I never ever ever thought that we would reach this point now 
Um, and uh, it's been a really glorious ride. And so part of your motivation and surfacing and putting a spotlight on these issues about the blurring of the lines between men and women is both what you're seeing today, and am I correct, it's also maybe what you're anticipating, that you, know, you started off and you couldn't imagine we'd be where we are today, right. and that these are not static you know, debates no. or situations, that you're looking down the road and saying, you know what, we may be looking at a very different understanding of performance that breaks through this you know, kind of dividing line between male and female. Yeah, and again, I think to, to look at Elaine May, the historian, I do think that, as I said earlier, four, five, six generations from now, um, we won't recognize sports as we know it. And I do think that women will incrementally start to participate in sports like baseball, because it's not just a power game. And in fact, if you look at many, if you want to talk about just strength and, and size, there are many Major League Baseball players who are Latin and Asian. And in terms of physical bulk, there are many women who are that size. So I do think that there are many sports where women can and will start to compete with and against men. I also think there will continue to be significant backlash about that. And uh, Professor Kane, I know that you are uh, friends with Cheryl Reeves. I am. So just to extend this. Yes. Um, should Cheryl Reeves, after her extraordinary success, including this year as a coach and executive of uh, Minnesota's uh, Lynx basketball team, should she be given the opportunity to coach an NBA male's team? Oh, absolutely. And I mean no disrespect to um, Flip I, I probably shouldn't go down this road, but there are many male Flip coaches. Flip Sanders, yeah, the Timberwolves I mean, I, I, male you know. coach? Yeah. No, go, lay it out there. Ryan, I mean, the point is, is that there are many, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, male coaches who don't have nearly the experience of people like Cheryl Reeve. And there's absolutely no reason why she shouldn't be, except then you have a situation where a woman is uh, in charge of um, professional male athletes. Now the response can be, well, they won't listen to her. Well, they don't listen to male coaches either. <laughs> I mean... Let's be honest, you know, they're in charge, not the coaches. I'm just saying. <laughs> I want to thank all of you for coming, um, and I want to thank this panelist, Dr. Feldman, Professor Kane, and Kate Semino as a final comment. Well, thanks so much for the great conversation. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoy about our center is that we can have discussions about presidential politics and journalism and um, mining and the environment and who knows what else. And this has been just one of the most interesting and um, unique conversations. And so thank you. Uh, and if you appreciate these types of things where we can bring together politics, policy, um, all kinds of interesting um, issues, that we are all aware of and wrestling with in a unique way, often with a bipartisan view, I encourage you to join our donor circle. We want to thank our donors who are on, our major donors who are on the back of your program here. These are organizational donors. Um, but we also have individual supporters at every level. This is meaningful to make these programs happen. They don't just happen. They happen with a lot of investment and um, time and care to make these kind of conversations available. Gifts to our center go through the U of M Foundation and are considered a charitable gift. So if you're interested in joining us, please let me know or get in touch um, later today. And uh, thank you again and enjoy the rest of the day.
fun. As always.